There is no such thing as time. Time is something that we've made up for our life, for industry, for being on time for work. Nujakora is our preferred term for creation, the beginning when everything came to be. Once we were created, these stories were passed on to where we are now. They give us everything. Hello and welcome back to History Obscura. If you have yet to check out London History Podcast with Hazel or London Guided Walks with Hazel, do so now. It will be worth your while. As for tonight on History Obscura, Minnie Mew has brought me a selection from Oceana. I certainly hope you enjoy it because if not, Minnie Mew will be duly punished for her poor choices. These days, Port Phillip Bay sprawls over 750 square miles, providing feeding grounds for whales and sheltering coastlines for brine-scented beach towns. But it's an exceptionally shallow waterway, less than 30 feet in most places. It's so shallow that, once upon a time, some 10,000 years ago, when ice sheets and glaciers held far more of the planet's water than is the case today, most of the bay floor was high and dry and grazed upon by kangaroos. Some 18 Aboriginal stories, many of which were transcribed by early settler Europeans in Australia, before the tribes that told them succumbed to cultural annihilation or disease, accurately describe geographical features that predated the last post-Ice Age rising of the seas. That's 400 generations of storytelling, without a written word. Some tribes can still point to islands that no longer exist, and provide their original names. A close look through documented Aboriginal Australian stories reveals interesting clues about the changing of the sea and land over long periods of time. A research team analyzed the contours of the land where such stories were told and used scientific reconstructions of prehistoric sea levels to date the origins of each of the stories, back to times when fewer than 10 million people were thought to have inhabited the entire planet. The stories describe permanent coastal flooding. In some cases, they describe times when dry land occupied space now submerged by water. In others, they tell of wading out to islands that can now only be reached by boat. Numerous tribes described a time when Port Phillip Bay was mostly dry land. An 1859 report produced for the state government described tribal descendants recalling when the bay was a kangaroo ground. The author of that report wrote that descendants would tell him, plenty catch kangaroo and plenty catch opossum there. Researchers determined that these stories recount a time when seas were about 30 feet higher than today, suggesting that the stories are about 8,000 to 9,000 years old. 
The Ngarnjeri people tell stories of Ningarderi, an ancestral character steeped in mythology. In one of their stories, the god chased his wives until they sought refuge by fleeing to Kangaroo Island, which they could mostly do by foot. The god angrily rose the seas, turning the women into rocks that now jut out of the water between the island and the mainland. Assuming this dark tale is based on true geographical changes, it originated at a time when seas were about 100 feet lower than they are today, dating to about 10,000 years ago. A story told by the Tiwi people describes the mythological creation of Bathurst and Melville Islands off Australia's northern coastline. An old woman is said to have crawled between the islands, followed by a flow of river. The story is interpreted as the settling of what are now islands, followed by subsequent flooding around them, which matches the geological time frame of about 8200 to 9600 years ago. An early European settler described Aboriginal stories telling how the islands of Rottnest, Karnak, and Garden Islands, which can still be viewed from the shores of Perth or Fremantle, once formed part of the mainland, and that the intervening ground was thickly covered with trees. According to at least one story, those trees caught fire, burning to quote, with such intensity that the ground split asunder with a great noise and the sea rushed in between, cutting off these islands from the mainland. This story has been dated to between 7,000 and 9,000 years ago. Stories by the original residents of Australia's northeastern coastline at Fitzroy Island tell of a time when the shoreline stretched so far out that it shared a border with the Great Barrier Reef. Stories tell of a river that entered the sea at what is now Fitzroy Island. The great gulf between today's shoreline and the reef suggests that the stories tell of a time when seas were more than 200 feet lower than they are today, placing the story's roots at as many as 12,600 years ago. Of course, Australia's rich history extends into the near-modern day. Oral and written histories of Aboriginals from Australia, documenting their incursions with European settlers, abound just as they do in North and South America. Nellie Egan is a consultant in Aboriginal studies. Her story takes you to the time of the government's assimilation policy. Egan says, In the 1920s, my grandfather purchased an old two-bedroom stone cottage at Gulwa, where my parents spent time with myself and other siblings. They met in their teens in Adelaide, where my father was sent for schooling. Because both parents were working away from home, we were left with grandparents. My first few years were spent in a typical Aboriginal family with parents, Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, some living with us, others as neighbors. The particularly older cousins, who are classed as brothers and sisters, shared the role of caring for the children. My memories are filled with their love, care,
care and warmth. There was a sense of belonging, which is only experienced when surrounded by family, especially brothers and sisters. This was stolen from us by the law of assimilation. Conflict and trauma followed, feelings I hadn't experienced before being taken away. Terrified and distraught, myself, my younger sister and brother were driven by police from Gulwa to the Aboriginal Affairs Department in Adelaide, where welfare assessed us. Our younger brother, a toddler, was placed in a boy's home. We never saw him again until he was 10. My sister and I were placed in Fullerton Girls' Home, then a foster home for a short while, and later Warawi Children's Home. During this time, we were forced to deal with what was happening. Our feelings of fear and anger were acted out in different ways. My sister was angry towards other children and authorities, and so was considered rebellious. I internalized these feelings and became withdrawn, untrusting and afraid to form any relationship with anyone else other than my sister. My greatest fear was that the authorities had the power to control whatever we did, and I didn't want us to be separated, too. There was no thought that we may have been normal children trying to cope with the trauma of being taken away from our family. Later, Aboriginal Affairs advertised, Home wanted for two Aboriginal girls, approximately seven and nine. Mr. and Mrs. McLennan, who were mature-aged and childless, replied and became our foster parents. For six years, we lived in an environment considered materialistically as white middle class. They provided for all our material needs, but had difficulty with the emotional and cultural needs of two Aboriginal individuals displaced from a culturally inclusive family environment into an isolated white nuclear family. We were searching for identity. Ours is not an isolated case. Many thousands of Aboriginal people have similar stories to tell. When we were taken away, our grandmother died of grief. Our older brother is still suffering from the feeling of hopelessness he felt when he was unable to help her through her grief. At 14, he was too young to understand and deal with it. My mother died in 1976, and I never really got to know her. My younger sister, however, was relocated back to her when 13 because the authorities considered her an uncontrollable child and used our mother as an appropriate solution to their problem. In reflection, my sister suffered the culture shock of being taken away to a white environment. She was also expected to fit back into an Aboriginal family without counseling and support. A stone has a direct impact when thrown into still waters but its rippling effect goes far beyond. The assimilation policy was the stone cast by the government of the day. Its ripple is being felt today by our families, children, and people. Media reports abound with the negative psychological and emotional effects of this policy on our people. Many Aboriginals, including members of my immediate family, 
are struggling with the antisocial behavioral patterns brought on by alcohol and drug abuse as a way of coping with the disorientation they feel because of this policy. To come to terms with these wide-ranging effects, I believe a program established and controlled by Aboriginal people is imperative. It needs to give the wider community a basic understanding of our traumas and struggles. It should include Aboriginal studies for the wider community and specific cultural enrichment programs for Aboriginal people affected by assimilation. In an attempt to document these unique and often chilling tales from Australia's Aboriginal people, in 2016, the Central Land Council published Every Hill Got a Story. The book is the first comprehensive history of Central Australia's Aboriginal people as told in their own words and their many languages. Heartbreaking, funny, and poignant, 127 eminent men and women remember surviving first contact, massacres and forced removals, and resisting more than a century of top-down government policies. Their testimonies paint a devastatingly honest picture of life and work on the missions, cattle stations, and fringes of towns. Thank you for listening again today, everyone. If you heard any odd squeaking sounds during the recording of this particular episode, I assure you that this was a toy mouse being played with by our dear Aladdin and Dorian Gray, and nothing more. They wouldn't do that. Until next time, good night. <laughs>